Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of the London Circle. It's been 10 years since the massacre of Rabah Square described as one of the worst massacres in modern times by Human Rights Watch. Since then, Egypt has descended into corruption, authoritarianism, failure and worse. Today, we'll be talking with Maha Azam, who leads the Egyptian Revolutionary Council on everything to do with Egypt and what the future holds. Enjoy. So, Dr. Maha, 10 years ago, um, we were witness, actual witnesses. We were glued to our TV screens and we watched as hundreds, probably over 1,500, according to many, many estimates, including human rights organizations, were literally slaughtered in Rabah. And uh, the scenes I personally, I will never forget. Um, for many of my friends and those I've met over the years um, who were there, they claim that they will be scarred forever. Many lost their loved ones, many lost their relatives, many lost friends, colleagues, um, and comrades whom they had been sitting with for over a month um, in that particular square in Cairo. And um, from then on, we had the um, installment of uh, a military regime, um, the likes of which has many uh, revolutionaries uh, claiming that, well, the days of Mubarak were considered a blessing in regards with what we have today, maybe facetiously, maybe really for whatever. But the fact is that it's been 10 years now uh, since uh, Egypt was, uh, uh, was uh, taken out of its democratic era into a military regime uh, ruled with an immense amount of corruption, an immense amount of brutality, and a, a very, very immense amount of uh, failure, economically, security-wise, politically, strategically. You know, we, we can talk about many, many things. But let's talk about Rabah. It's been 10 years. What do you recall? Um, what happened in Rabah needs to be contextualized because we can speak of the brutality of the military regime against citizens, and we can come back to that because it was a crime against Egyptian citizens who were defending their nascent democracy peacefully. What happened in Rabah was described by Human Rights Watch as the worst massacre in the modern history of Egypt. And possibly, I use the word possibly for legal terms, a crime against humanity. I believe it is recognized by human rights researchers and by legal uh, figures as a crime against humanity. But I'm cautious because legally we can't say it is until, until a court of some high regard says so. But it was a crime against humanity, will remain a crime against humanity. So we can go into detail about what happened in Rabah, but I think we need to start by contextualizing it. It is part of a series of crimes committed by the military regime in Egypt against its own people. The crime of Rabah may not be the last. The crimes that were committed after the 30th of June were a chain of crimes. In July before Rabah, Egyptians protesting peacefully again 
in front of the Republican Guard in early July, where they believed their president, their elected president, the first freely and democratically elected president of Egypt, the first civilian president of Egypt, was being held. In that protest in early July, on the 5th of July, about seven people were gunned down, one of them just for putting up a poster of President, the late President Morsi. On the 8th of July, again, peaceful protesters in front of the Republican Guard, I believe 61, were also shot dead. In the Manassa, uh, a platform uh, in Egypt, again, 95 in late July, July the 27th, 95 people were gunned down, again, unarmed, unarmed civilians. We had Rabaa on the 14th of August, other squares such as the Nahda being um, targets and, tar uh, and where massacres, literally massacres, took place. People were shot at, uh, with gunfire and there was the burning of people and the burning of the hospital in Rabah. Following Rabah on the 16th of August, again in Ramsey Square in central Cairo, people were shot, over a hundred people were shot dead. This is within a very short period of within a month or just over a month this was happening. This is not to go into the crimes that have been committed by a military regime over decades. Under a chain of military leaders, part of the 52 coup, whether under Nasser or Sadat or Mubarak, and then Sisi. Many will argue this is one of the worst eras in Egypt's modern history. The reality is that I believe all these tyrants would have crushed resistance. But what we saw after 2011 and the Arab Spring was the emergence of mass resistance and peaceful resistance, let me say in sit-in, in protests, and it was managed through state violence, through military violence, through the violence of the security forces. Rabah represents a breaking point because the horrors of what happened then are a demarcation between the nature of the military regime and those calling for freedom and rights of the Egyptian people that gathered in a peaceful sitting during Ramadan in the heat of the summer. Um, we can go on and describe in detail some of the atrocities. Before you do, um, I mean, obviously what needs to be said is that uh, the fact that um, um, I quote others by saying that this is arguably the worst that Egypt has seen is by no means any compliment paid to the former uh, regimes. It just um, you know s seems that there's some somehow some sort of competition in brutality mm -hmm. as to who can uh, race to the to the bottom quicker or in a in a more violent way. But we, I mean, most people would would understand the fact that Egypt is ruled by the military. But I want you to draw a picture what does that actually mean being um, ruled by the army what does that actually mean 
The reason I tried to contextualize it, although people know that the military has been in power in one form or another, whether the military man takes off the uniform and wears a suit or doesn't, is important because it tells us something about the legacy and nature of military regimes. And the question you ask is so pertinent because ultimately living under a military regime means living in a republic of fear. It means absolute control. That absolute control means that the, the state can be described both as a military state and a police state in the same way that Eastern European states at one point were described as police states, where the Ministry of Interior may at one time be the, at the apex of power, at another time the military is at the apex of power. But ultimately they come together in order to oppress ordinary citizens. That oppression may be the result of political resistance, but it also may be for other reasons. There is no resort to the rule of law in a military state. There is no uh, real independence of the ju judiciary. And those that always that often claim that the judiciary before this era of Sisi was more independent. Yes, there may have been a, a degree of um, a degree of independence in some circles and in some cases, but ultimately the state and the the president of the the unelected president that was a product of the military had supreme power. The judiciary now is merely uh, an arm of the military. And so is the media, uh, and so is the economy. So living under Th this is this is fascinating, by the way. And I I I, I fail to uh, to point to another example of this. But but please expand on the economy. The, the, I think when we talk about living under a military state, it means that there is full control of all the sectors of society, and one of them being the economy. Um, again, figures have been touted over a long time that the Egyptian military has a stranglehold on the economy. And therefore, the Egyptian economy, whether you believe in capitalism or anything else, means that it isn't open to competition. And at the same time, even in terms of the interests of the people, if you veer towards socialist ideals, you also don't really have the benefits of a socialist state. The, the, the military has controlled the economy, some say 20%, 30%. Today on the CC, many are saying far more than that. Over 60% of the economy, maybe 70% is, is controlled by the military. And, and in that respect, CC has won uh, the support of the military around him uh, and has also antagonized the business elite. But at the same time, he is in a quandary because the economy um, in Egypt is falling apart. Uh, there is not just high inflation, the Egyptian pound is worth nothing. Uh, the vast majority of Egyptians, 60% live on or below the poverty line. And the economic situation, which some point to and say is bad all across the world, is even more dire in Egypt. And there is really no hope of improvement. Even investors from the Gulf are saying that Egypt needs to, the Egyptian state needs to get its act together and sort things out. But the dilemma is that the, the Egyptian regime lives on handouts to its 
to its circle of supporters and those circle that circle of supporters has increasingly become wealthier and wealthier the gap between the rich and the poor has always existed it existed under mubarak and again we had a very corrupt regime then so those who say the days of mubarak were better forget that ultimately when mubarak fell Egypt's actual growth was 5% and yet the vast majority of Egyptians were living in poverty because corruption is is not just endemic it is systematic and the regime promotes it it has to promote corruption in order to survive and in order to enrich itself so any kind of return to the mubarak state and to the uh, to uh, let's say to one of mubarak's sons will only uh, reinvent the wheel it may be cosmetically changing it but ultimately Egyptians will still live under a regime that is unaccountable. So but some might argue that Egypt has regularly held elections and the people line up as we see to uh, you know to to cast their votes in ballot boxes. Um I I I don't think I would be saying anything new if I said that uh, the suggestions of rigging are considerable but um, surely when a system tells the world that they are heading towards an election and that the elections are held on time and that um, uh, the, the, the votes are, are accounted for and the uh, results declared. Uh, surely that's something that speaks of uh, maybe a semblance even of democracy, maybe something to garner, to, to, to try to uh, grow, to, to, you know, to, to, to help flourish so that maybe it, it could then become the kind of model that everyone benefits from, no? I think Egyptians are fully aware that there were no free and fair elections except in 2012. Um, and uh, the elections that brought to power President Mohamed Morsi, the first civilian president of Egypt. And it is only then that the turnout was enormous. Uh, I think 60% of Egyptians turned out to vote. Um, all other elections, I think, are recognized by Egyptians as rigged elections. Uh, under Sisi, the two elections that took place, there were, uh, you know, pictures of empty, uh, 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 you know, uh, empty uh, uh, elections, polling stations, polling stations and... exactly, and where eventually uh, uh, they had to uh, bring people in on buses and give them, uh, you know, try to give them uh, boxes, incentives, incentives whether food it's food or, or, or whatever, and some maybe money as well in order to get them out to, to vote. And they do that because Egypt has a huge bureaucracy. So you get out, you bring out the people working in offices, you, bring, you might even bring out uh, conscripts out of uniform and make sure that they queue. Uh, there are, the methods of the military regime uh, are, are actually very crude and yet the mechanism is quite sophisticated because they've been doing it for so many decades. But the Egyptian people know. And I think in addition, actually, Dr. Anas, what the international that the international community also knows and it turns a blind eye um, i believe that the egyptian people and throughout the arab world people are aware of what rigged elections are that that end up with results of over 90% for the head of state 
again and again. But also the international community knows full well what a democratic election is. And that is why they could never question the democratic um, election of President Morsi in 2012. And believe me, they would have. Uh, and, the, and the international community also has been complicit, and I know we'll come back to this, in speaking about the road to democracy. The, ever since the, the coup of 2013, we heard for several years after, in 2013 and 2014, and for two years or three, the talk of a roadmap to democracy. They even had to drop that because they realized the elections were rigged. They knew there were no other candidates. You can't have elections when you've got over 60,000 political prisoners, uh, when there is no freedom of the media or freedom of assembly. Uh, and then you say, I'm going to hold elections. Um, even now, the talk of a uh, uh, the national dialogue that he instituted about a year ago and got going is a farce because there were those Egyptians inside who either played along with the idea of a national dialogue or hoped that they might have a place in this slightly more, in quotes, open political environment that was being allowed by the military uh, leader. And they have found it's a farce. Uh, some have withdrawn, some have attacked it, and uh, some have found themselves um, uh, you know, uh, in prison because oh, they have they have dared to attack the the, the regime during this period. So um, the whole issue of a democracy under military dictatorship or a political opening up, I think, is a farce. How does, if I may, how does? I mean, I, I personally, I mean, talking about the turnout, I think the last round of elections, I think there was barely fifteen percent of a turnout that might in some um, uh, some uh, you know realistic reasonable kind of setup might be seen as a referendum regarding the the, the status quo that more than 85% of of the population saw that it wasn't even worth their day to uh, spend it standing in line or not even standing in line just popping into a polling station and then casting a vote but before that, I'd like to pose a question that might be slightly harsh, but I think it's, um, it needs to be uh, cast. And that is, how could the people, the millions, who came out on the 25th of January and created one of the most glorious events that definitely Egypt, but also the entire region has ever witnessed, and managed to overthrow someone whom he, as well as his sons, were lined up to be the rulers of Egypt, and the owners, almost, of Egypt for the next decades, um, with alliances around the world, from the United States to you know most uh, uh, superpowers around the world. Um, how could that same people whom inspired the entire world so that we had the occupation movement here in London, we had it across Europe, North America, and people citing Tahrir, Tahrir Square, as being their inspiration. And all of a sudden elevating the Egyptian person from someone who was absolutely nullified by virtue of their own regime to someone who was seen as being a model 
for people around the world, including the Europeans, including the Americans, to emulate. How could that same people then uh, acquiesce in a way, whether they did or not, I'm going to hear from you, but how could they then become subject of being ruled by this regime, which is marked by its failure, by its corruption, by its br brutality? I think the answer, if we were to pinpoint two important dimensions, would be uh, living under dictatorship for decades and uh, the fear that mili the military order instills in practice through imprisonment and torture and then denial of livelihood. And I say denial of livelihood because the second dimension is poverty. Um, when you have a people that rose up, yes, and uh, were able to challenge um, uh, a regime that was corrupt and also dictatorial, uh, that opportunity was given because there was some space, even very narrow. And uh, that space was also, um, it wasn't that it was allowed, it was sort of overlooked. So it was also the mistake of the regime. The current regime doesn't want to make that mistake again. And that is why there is such a, uh, an incredible level of control and containment, unprecedented in Egypt, except at times, I believe, under Nasser. So it's not that there is necessarily acquiescence across the board. Uh, there is despair, yes, and the despair comes out of poverty and the daily struggle of citizens to just make ends meet or to basically find enough food to put on the table. And I'm not talking about the most poor in society, I'm even talking about the middle class in Egypt today. For them to be able to raise their heads and think about moving and challenging this regime is not an easy thing. They may decide if there is any hope for some kind of organizational uh, movement, uh, some organization to happen on the ground behind the scenes, and again, very difficult, that it is actually worth their while because things are going from bad to worse. There is apathy, undoubtedly, but I believe that, as you rightly said, those people who came out, although now there is a new generation of Egyptians. We're talking about 10 years on. They, their ideas won't have changed overnight. This is why often I say to people when they say everyone is with Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, especially after the coup, I say no, because we've never had really any proof of that. We've had regime propaganda. The only proof we have are the elect of of wh where people stood were the free and fair elections of 2012. That is the barometer. And I believe that that is why they could not face elections again and maintain Dr. Morsi in power because they knew that three, four, that four years down the line, those going to the ballot may have made the same choices 
and may have not, but there would have been other candidates. But the choice of the people was not for a military regime. It may have been the choice of some, but we, ne we will never really know. But what is clear that Egypt now is again on the brink because of the economic situation and because of the dire human rights situation. And this is not a dire human rights situation that affects a politically active group alone. It means that anyone, a blogger, someone who has over 4,000 tweets um, and then says something critical is liable to be picked up. Um, the, the situation is you know, the, the, you know, the regime is, is this, afraid. This is quite important because the way which this is framed, even today, you know, by those who sometimes write about what's happened in Egypt over the past 10 years, it's framed as though this was the regime cracking down on the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, but what you say is quite important because amongst those who were killed in Rabaa or Nahva or Manasseh, um, definitely weren't of the Muslim Brotherhood. And um, many of the 60,000 or so political prisoners, I want to come to those, um, are not of the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, that is not to demean or to somehow state that um, any kind of cracking down on the Muslim Brotherhood is justified. Not at all. But the way in which this is framed, especially in the West, and especially by those who um, who have absolutely no problem with uh, what's happened in Rabaa, who have absolutely no problem with Egypt being as a nation and as a country being crushed by the series of catastrophic failures on every single level uh, under the regime. They have absolutely no interest in, in that. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, something that, that plays heavily that this was against the Muslim Brotherhood and therefore it's fine to kill a few, you know, hundred uh, or even over a thousand people in one single day. That's absolutely fine. And uh, to throw them all in prison and to deny them a fair trial and to torture them and often um, kill them by medical negligence or the such is absolutely justified. What would your response be to that? I think it's one of the most critical and central points regarding the struggle for freedom in Egypt mm -hmm. because the demonization, and I use my words carefully, of the Muslim Brotherhood has been a way of um, allowing the system to continue. Uh, and that demonization uh, has occurred through the media over decades and decades, even before Sisi and is also um, absorbed and promoted in the West. Um, I want to come back to the Muslim Brotherhood and their peaceful resistance and its importance. But yes, you're absolutely right. Those who have been imprisoned and those who have died have also um, are not of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, they are um, accused by the regime and this is very important, as being Muslim Brotherhood. It's so, a very convenient uh, accusation or label. It's a convenient accusation and it allows for violations uh, that uh, would otherwise, the regime feels, would be difficult to defend. 
Um, and uh, this is happening more and more today because more and more uh, young people particularly and and others who participated in the uh, uh, Arab the spring the uprising of 2011 in Tahrir uh, are opposed to the regime and do speak out and have to face the consequences but th the problem is and I think it does need some um, rethinking is by putting a, a sort of turning a blind eye to what's happening to the brotherhood in terms of violations and saying, yes, yes, of course, they are the biggest victims. Uh, and yes, they make up the most of the numbers that uh, fell in Rabah or, or were killed in Rabah, and they make most up most of the numbers of those in prison. But yes, you know, their cases, we won't, we won't focus on them. Uh, and that also uh, applies to some human rights organizations who've done incredible work in exposing the atrocities of the Sisi regime and being defenders of dissidents. But we can't separate people on the basis of ideology. We can separate them on the basis of whether they have resorted to violence or not, whether they are really accused of terrorism or not. But it is accepted totally and fully that the Brotherhood have not resorted to violence. They did not resort to violence in Rabah. The Human Rights Watch report says that, lawyers have said that, they weren't even able to defend themselves. And there, it is critical to acknowledge that the strategic decision of the leadership that is accepted by the vast, vast majority of all Brotherhood members is a non-violent path. And anyone, whether an individual falls outside that, that they are no longer part of the Brotherhood. E Egypt, and it has been said by actually um, a former MP and Minister of Justice, Crispin Blunt, more than once, that we have to acknowledge how the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt has managed to maintain uh, the, the peacefulness and been able to ensure that Egypt doesn't fall apart in terms of violence, despite all that the army has done. Absolutely, and continues to do regarding the leaders of the, of the Muslim Brotherhood. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's an incredibly pertinent point, but I'd like to uh, come back one step because um, I was, uh, I've just remembered uh, um, an interaction between myself and a journalist several years ago, um, I think around 2017 or 2018, and a, quite a, a renowned journalist who wanted to write about Egypt. And I recall that amongst his questions was one about, uh, uh, so uh, how many um, of the several tens of thousands who were, who, were, who were imprisoned, how many of them aren't uh, Muslim Brotherhood? I said, I don't have the figures. He said, well, um, would it be possible to find out um, wh how many, what their names are, and um, you know the, 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 the background of why they're held in prison or the such? So I asked, I said, why, why do you ask? He said, well, it would make um, a stronger story um, if I mentioned that there are those amongst the 16,000 who aren't Muslim Brotherhood. And I thought that that exemplified the problem that, um, that many probably well-intentioned people 
um, have, and that is that this kind of discrimination based on one's ideological beliefs. So if you, I mean, in another word, and this is what I mentioned to him, I said, so what you're saying is that if we find, let's say 50 or 100 or 200 or 2,000, I don't know, who aren't Muslim Brotherhood, their cases will be highlighted as being a case of uh, oppression. Yet the rest of the you know, 50,000, 55,000, it's fine because they're Muslim brother. Is that what you're saying? And essentially, that is how you know, most people, unfortunately, are behaving. But you know the danger of this and why people may not be thinking clearly <laughs> is that if you substitute that for socialists or communists or leftists or liberals, if we didn't have the Brotherhood in Egypt, but the regime was, um, you know, focusing on one group that challenged them, that group was leftist in nature, or let's say even liberal, liberal, liberal democratic, and it decided that they were a major challenge and a threat to the continuation of that regime. You know, th th this is this is a nonsense. This is a nonsense. The violation of rights is a violation of rights. And as I said, if that group, um, whatever, um, whatever its, its political uh, program may be, as long as it is a political program that believes in the democratic process, and they proved that. They proved that through their participation in elections, through their coming to power, through, uh, you know, and maintaining the electoral bodies. Uh, and they were the ones that were actually overthrown. Um, I think that this issue is key, that there needs to be greater focus on it, because in a sense, it's allowing the violations to continue and for people to die in prison. Um, and Often there are also people that may not be even members of the Brotherhood, but have been uh, labelled labelled as such. It's, uh, I mean, we're 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 talking about Rabah and we're talking about the the massacre that occurred. Um, but within what you've just said, um, the violations basically carried carried on, um, and they still carry on, and they still continue. I mean, we're talking about a legal process that is, in my estimation, and I'm no legal expert, but is farcical to say the very least, where in uh, one setting, a court would condemn several dozen people to death in one fell swoop, where many of those who were condemned to either lengthy prison sentences or even worse, um, spoke of the fact that they never got to even converse with their own solicitors where they didn't have a chance to present their case or to defend their charges. And some even spoke of the fact that they didn't actually know what charges were leveled against them. In many cases, um, uh, people came, uh, you know, spoke about the fact that they were charged in cases where they had proof that they weren't even there, that they had nothing to do with that event whatsoever. Um, but that carries on, that continues until this very day. Tell me a little about, about those, about the political prisoners. Tell me a little about the medical neglect, about the violation of the, of the prisoners' rights, about visitation issues. 
And some of these issues which claim the lives of people like, for instance, Mohammed Mursi uh, and others, many others. Tell me a little so about this. So the, the, the conditions in the prison are inhumane and they have been so for a decade. Um, they are part and parcel of, again, a strategy uh, to uh, break both a movement, the Brotherhood, and to break the will of anyone who wants to challenge the regime. The military, um, I just want to come back to Sisi very quickly. He frequently has said in his speeches that I will not allow January 25th to ever happen again. Uh, and that kind of statement is an indicator of the kind of fear that he's saying must be instilled to ensure that no one raises their head to think about having another intifada of sorts, if you like, uprising. So the prison cells are such that they are um, they are not there to imprison, to 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 keep the the, the prisoner inside. They are a, a means of torturing and slow death. And the term slow death has been used again and again by human rights organizations. Egyptian human rights organizations do a lot of very good work. Uh, even though they're abroad, they have contact with families and they receive a lot of information. And the lack of medication uh, has meant that many prisoners have died. And the, the the and it's just a slow death they're denied medication they're denied uh, the 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 right to move to a med, uh, to a military even a medical hospital um and i believe also the issue of sanitation of the cold in winter all these things have had a dire impact on the health of prisoners and has meant that a very high percentage has died of given that if you compare it with other prisoners elsewhere. So, you know, prisoners, I'm not comparing with the West, but the numbers uh, run into, for example, you, you could have, I think, I don't want to quote exactly, but maybe a thousand prisoners have died from neglect over the years. Mm. President Morsi was one of them. President Morsi uh, had diabetes. Um, he was denied his medication. And even the way he died uh, remains very suspicious and was really, I mean, was 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 probably murder um, uh, because um, he the, there was no access to the president. He often was worried. He did claim more than once that his food may be poisoned. Um, and therefore, what we're seeing in Egypt's prison um, is also a, um, a, a, a means of ensuring that you break the prisoner and you ensure that that message gets out to others. Don't think of doing anything because you will f face the same fate. There are no visits. Uh, women who have made the trek sometimes to prisons out, uh, quite far away uh, will wait for hours and hours. Uh, they can suffer harassment. Uh, the food that they bring uh, for their husbands or their fathers will be taken away from them. Uh, they uh, sometimes have to uh, also 
pay to the pay something to the prison guard, hoping that they will then get access, and that then again is denied. Um, there is no recourse to a legal system. Uh, the judges keep, um, uh, you know, uh, referring the case over and over again, delaying it. So sometimes people don't even know what they've been accused of. Um, it is a um, one of the worst periods in Egypt's judicial history. And the judges that are complicit, some of the main judges uh, that have um, issued also the execution orders, uh, have really been complicit in one of the most murderous regimes ever. And I think it's worth noting that Egypt, because of the executions that were carried out over the last five years, is one of the highest executioners in the world. It is the third highest in the world, I believe. What's the mood like amid the widespread poverty? You mentioned apathy. And uh, amid the, 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 the overall failure of the Egyptian state to even protect its own national interests, I mean, we talk about Said the Nahda, for instance, um, between Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia. We talk about uh, the islands of uh, Tehran, Sanafir, where we talk about um, the Suez uh, can uh, Canal. We talk about, you know, and we can go on and on. Um, what's the mood like? I mean, the, the, it's made clear by the regime and Sisi himself, has, as you put it, has uh, said that he will never allow for a 25th of January incident to happen or to re-happen ever again. Um, but again, what does the Egyptian public feel like? I think there may be apathy on the one hand in terms of uh, the ability to change the political order. But there is also acknowledgement uh, that uh, this military regime and Sisi himself has sold Egyptians lies. And um, again, we need to go back a little bit to the idea of the nation state and the strength of nationalism that was promoted by one regime after the other. Egypt at the helm, Egypt as leader of the Arab world, Egypt as and its heroic military forces despite the terrible defeat of 67 and every other military defeat. So the idea of heroism and carrying the banner of uh, you know, um, success in regional issues and leadership and so on has all been dashed. And no more, yeah, particularly so in the case of uh, the negotiations over the the dam, the Ethiopian dam, uh, and the 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 fear that Egyptians have in regard to the water resources. Again, the issue of Tehran and Sanafir really um, created a, a, a backlash among, let's say, many Egyptians who felt, you know, national pride in and that these things were just being sold off and uh, given away. And again, in terms of being sold off. Again, Egyptians feel that today Egypt is being sold. It is being sold uh, in order to just bring in more money uh, that none of them will see the benefits of investments from the Gulf. What investments? They're selling, selling the Egyptian regime is selling Egyptian assets. So the, the nationalist fervor that the military regimes of Egypt or successive regimes have always fostered in the Egyptian citizen 
in itself has been dashed by this regime. So the Egyptian citizen is left with very little. He, he and she are left with poverty and also the dashing of the kind of pride in uh, in certain uh, nationalist causes. And also, of course, um, the the closeness to um, the the state of Israel and the 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 ongoing um, feel feeling, I believe, among many Egyptians, um, that uh, there has been and continues to be uh, a sellout um, of the international security interests of Egypt. Well, let's move to where you and I sit today. Britain amongst uh, Europe, North America, the Western world by far and large um, claims to uphold democracy, freedom, human rights, equality as values and as values that identify um, this, if you wish, civilization. And, um, And yet those very same countries, whether timidly or whether rushingly they welcomed uh, the military coup and uh, maybe in not as many words, but in actions, Sisi now travels the world, is received uh, on, you know, given the red carpet treatment wherever he goes. Um, He claims military aid from the United States to the tune of billions every single year. And besides, or if you wish to put to one side, the murmurings of dissent here or there, but by far and large, you could say that he's um, um, he's a, a leader of a state that has quite healthy ties with the entire world. So how does that make you feel? I mean, we're talking about a state that is, um, by all means and purposes, is an oppressive, authoritarian, dictatorial, torturous, brutal, and more importantly, probably failed state. Yet that state is seen as uh, a sovereign state that uh, has a standing on the world stage. And um, in, a, in a few weeks time, we'll see CC uh, walking the streets of New York, heading towards the General Assembly of the United Nations and giving a rousing speech, no doubt, and receiving and meeting with many world leaders. Where does the responsibility lie? I think that this is the story of Western support for dictatorship all over the world. Uh, And um, its uh, consequences um, have um, been dire for the peoples of whatever region or country was involved or is involved uh, in terms of being on the receiving end of the policies of Western democratic governments that assume different policies for people across the world to the policies they pursue for their own citizens. It makes a mockery of democracy. It makes a mockery of human rights. And we're privileged to live in countries um, across the world, such as Britain, where there is the rule of law and where there is democracy. But we also are fully aware that the era of colonialism should be over by now. And um, I'm not one of these people that will rant on about the uh, identical 
forms of colonialism. No, not at all. Control and um, uh, oppression of peoples across the world and exploitation can happen in different ways. But it can be a continuation of a kind of colonial mindset, even if that colonial mindset has evolved. It's a feeling of superiority. It's a belief that it is in our interest to pursue certain policies uh, that are give us the greatest benefit and the greatest um, and the best deals, whether they are deals to do with uh, the gas or with oil or with uh, trade. I think in it, it's a mistaken, a mistaken reading uh, if we're to look ahead, and. Uh, Democrats throughout the world, those who believe in democracy, uh, should realize that their government's policies are archaic and have created a great deal of damage and will actually uh, benefit the authoritarianism that is increasing worldwide. And when I speak about that authoritarianism, I'm not talking about the authoritarianism of the Gulf states or of Egypt. I'm talking about China and Russia. And if the peoples of democracies in the world, the United States and Europe, and a new generation doesn't wake up to the idea that either democracy and human rights are for all, then they are actually empowering and strengthening the authoritarian uh, wave that is coming. And that authoritarian wave is going to find and is finding allies in the Middle East and will support them and will stand with them. So the United States policy and that of the UK and the European countries of also supporting authoritarianism on the same grounds by lifting CC and giving him the red carpet treatment and so on, they are literally competing with China and Russia and they'll be on a level playing field and eventually the others may actually win. Where they may make gains if they look forward and they have new policies and that needs creativity and political courage and a political will is to say, no, democracy is going to be defeated. And actually, we should ensure that we have allies who are Democrats in the Middle East. And those Democrats don't have to be in our image. They have to ensure that there is the rule of law, respect for human rights, but they have also the right to choose. And that choices may be somewhat different to ours. How about um, channels um, that you're pursuing, um, others are pursuing, um, to uh, to get some some justice for the victims of Rabaa, for those who are political who are sitting in prison cells, the tens of thousands who are doing this right now. Um, what kind of legal recourse do you have? I think um, there are several channels, but again, it requires political will. Uh, one of them is uh, international jurisdiction, um, and that has not been necessarily pursued, I think, uh, sufficiently in the Egyptian case. Um, it requires good legal action, but it requires also uh, backing. Uh, we're not going to necessarily get backing from states directly, but I think the case of Rabah 
needs to be kept alive. I think more and more, especially 10 years on, uh, there is continuing exposure. Um, even our discussion today is exposure of the crime that was committed. It was a heinous crime, and the victims of that crime, whether they're injured, are still alive today. The families that lost loved ones are still around today. So that the exposure of that crime needs to continue. Ten years is nothing in the history of a nation. It is nothing in the history of bringing culprits to justice. We know that in the German case, and we, in, in the case of Germany, and in the case of other European countries, in the heinous crimes committed uh, against the Jews and against others. Heinous crimes have been committed against us, against the Egyptians, against the Palestinians, against the Syrians, and in international jurisdiction is a path that needs to be pursued much more uh, strongly. Uh, I believe also that there is the whole um, issue of uh, the, uh, the United Nations Human Rights Council. Uh, of course, we know who the big players are in that, but I think um, different groups, Egyptian and other human rights organizations, need to again uh, uh, pressure the United Nations again on this issue of an investigation and bringing uh, the criminals to justice. We know who they are. Uh, they have been named. The, 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 the government at the time responsible for the massacre was that of Beblawi, and he was given uh, diplomatic immunity when he went to Washington and there was attempt then to stop him. Uh, we know that the, the, the now uh, head of the Egyptian state, the head of the coup, uh, Sisi, was then defense minister and gave the orders, and also uh, uh, the interior minister, Mohammed uh, uh, Ibrahim, and we also know Menshawi, the head of the security, who entered and uh, uh, and orchestrated the killing. There, the names are there. The names are there, and there needs to they need to be pursued and brought to justice. Now, the problem is that Egypt is not a signatory to the Rome Statute. Uh, and some said that this was a mistake during the time of President Morsi. President Morsi was there for just under a year. And there, as far as I know, there was every intention to sign the, the statute, the Rome Statute. That would at least have helped us open the door, although difficult with the immunity that is being granted internationally to Sisi and those who committed the crime. But the point that I want to make is that I am hopeful that one day this regime will come to an end and a new government, an elected government in Egypt will sign the Rome Statute and the doors will be opened for bringing some of these people to international justice or at the or on another level among free and fair courts in Egypt itself. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.